The reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 to 3, and then verses 11 to 32. Luke chapter 15, 1 to 3, and then 11 to 32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has him back, safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, You killed a fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Do you enjoy watching buildings be built? 
Have you ever looked at a building here in Dubai and wondered if it was going to be an office building or a hotel or just another Dubai shopping mall? Well, I've become more and more interested in construction over the last couple of years, and Dubai is a great place for that, right? We have on the one hand the world's tallest building, on the other we have an indoor ski slope, and we even have that Swiss cheese building. Have you seen that place there in Business Bay, that hideous building that looks like a tall rectangular piece of Swiss cheese? I don't know how in the world they came up with that idea. I would have loved to be a fly on the wall in that meeting where they were discussing how to transform the Dubai skyline and that man had the idea in the back. What if we build a building that looks like cheese? (laughs) Incredible. Dubai is filled with incredible buildings, isn't it? It's filled with architectural designs that are incredible. But one building has been most intriguing to me. It's actually a really simple type of building. If you were to drive by it every day on the way to work, it would look like a simple commercial building until one day you saw a large crane come out and drop a big silver box down on the corner of the slab. You would see that that box was bigger than a normal living room and taller than the men who were down there working on it. In the days following, as you drove by, you'd see the men put plaster and put uh, different materials uh, to try to build around the box. They would frame the building, put drywall, until one day you would no longer uh, be able to see this silver, silver shining box. And your interest is just peaked at this point. You're wondering, what kind of building is it? And so you're glad when one day you find out that this building being built is to be a bank, and the silver box is to be the bank's vault. Now, the vault was not only large in size, as I've described, but it was central to everything that the bank stood for. It was the first thing being built, and everything else was constructed around the vault. It lay at the heart of the bank. It defined the bank's purpose. It gave it value, and it made it distinct to every other building around it. Well, for us at Redeemer Church of Dubai, the gospel is our vault. It's what we start with here at the church. It's what we build everything else around it. It's what we build our Friday morning gatherings around. If something doesn't fit with the gospel, then we don't use it. We don't do it. We don't merely sing songs about our personal feelings or emotions, but we sing about what Jesus has done for us. We don't pray prayers that are centered on what we think we need, but we look to the scriptures and we pray gospel-saturated prayers as we see Christ define what we need. And we don't preach the latest and greatest tips on living a nice and easy lifestyle. No, we preach Christ crucified and raised from the dead. See, it's the gospel and the gospel alone that distinguishes us as a church. Like the construction of a bank around its vault, all aspects of our worship gatherings and all aspects of our lives are to be built around and centered on the gospel. 
So for the next three weeks, we'll be closely examining the gospel of Jesus Christ. And today we'll be answering the question, what is the gospel? Now the word gospel simply means good news. And so today we're going to unpack what that good news is. And then the next two weeks, we'll see how the gospel transforms our lives, our community, and our mission to the world. So what is the gospel? What is the vault of our Christian life? Well, to answer that question, we're going to be looking at the story that Lenny read, a story that Jesus tells to a group called the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were a group of men who prided themselves on obedience to the law. They prided themselves in how good they acted and how good they worked. It's a story here traditionally called the parable of the prodigal son. And it has radically transformed my life over the years. Many of you are familiar with the story. And I know others who are in church, maybe at a church gathering for the first time in your life. This will be noob. And you've, you've picked a good morning to be here as we look at the heart of our Christian faith. The gospel explained. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you haven't done already, to Luke chapter 15. Luke is the third book of the New Testament, about two-thirds the way through your Bibles. You'll see Matthew and then Mark, and then after that, you'll come to the book of Luke. And in the story, we'll see two sons, and we'll see the love of a father for both of his sons. Well, let's look first at the younger son. Notice in verse 12 that the son makes a strange and bizarre request. He comes to his father and says, Dad, give me my share of the estate. Well, this was, this was an outlandish request. The hearers of this story in Christ's day would have been utterly shocked The eldest son received two-thirds of the inheritance, and the younger son received one-third, but that happened after the father died. It was unheard of for a son to ask his father while he was living. It was akin to wishing him dead. See, he's saying, Dad, I, I want your stuff. I want your things. I want your money, but I don't want you my relationship with you is just a, just a means to an end, and I can't wait for you to die. The people in the village listening would have been amazed by the son's speech. But, the, but they were absolutely astounded at the father's response. See, traditionally, a village father would respond by beating or disowning his son or even taking him out to the city gates where the leaders would even stone him. This was serious. Disobeying your father in this way was was the same as apostasy. It was the same as leaving your faith. That's how they looked at it. It was shameful on the whole family. But the father not only doesn't have his son hurt or ridiculed or even killed, he actually divides up the property. The word for property is actually the word we get for life. The father divided his life and gave to his son. 
Now, why, why does he say this in this way? Well, Tim Keller has been helpful to me in my understanding of this parable. And he says it's because people's relationship with their land was different back then than it is today. Their entire identity was tied to their land. Their standing in the community was based on the land that they owned. See, there there are no stocks, no bonds, no savings accounts. Rather, the wealth of a family was in a cluster of homes. It was in their animals. It was in their land. And to suddenly lose one-third of your livelihood, it would mean a staggering loss to the whole community. It was to tear apart his standing in the community. And yet the father gave him the property. The hearers listening to the story would have never, ever heard a father do this. So in verse 13, we see the younger son takes the money and he leaves. And he took the money and went to a distant land. He squandered the money with wasteful living. He wakes up one day flat broke during a famine, and the only job he could get was feeding pigs. I mean, this is as low as you could go for a Jew. I mean, he's now salivating. He's dreaming about the pig's food. See, the point is clear. He's now lower than even the pigs. They have a meal, and he has nothing well, while dreaming about the pig's food in verse 17, it says he, it says he comes to his senses. He, he wakes up. And he says, okay, my life is terrible. I've ruined everything. I've wasted it. I have nothing. I'm going to go back to my father. And he begins practicing his speech. He begins working out what he's going to say. And he says to himself, I, I know I can't be your son Take me back as one of your hired men. See, a hired man was one who lived in town and was contracted for special jobs. He knew he had violated the rules of the community and could not be brought back as a son. So he he came up with a way to pay the father back, to try to earn his way back to his father. Well, at this point, the story, is, the story is filled with tension. We're, we're at the edges of our seats. The hearers would have been at, at their edges of their seats wondering, what is the father going to do? How is the father going to treat this boy? What's his response going to be? But look at the remarkable scene as the boy approaches his old home in verse 20. So he got up and went to the father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. It's just breathtaking. But while he was still a long way off, the father was looking out for him. Now to be able to see out in the distance, what had the father been doing? See, to see him out in the distance, he had to be looking out on the horizon constantly. You have to be looking so that you can see when that little dot arrives 
on the horizon. So the father sees that dot, and the text says that his heart went out for his son. While he was still in the distance, while the boy was still walking with his head down in shame, ready to be rejected, while he was still a long way off, the father ran to him, embraced him, kissed him, and accepted him. He laid all propriety aside and ran. I remember when Gloria and I first moved to Oman. We lived in a small village for about six months. And when we moved there, we had several different questions about the culture, different questions about food and and where we could go. And one of my questions revolved around running. I wanted to, to run, to stay in shape, to get some exercise. So I asked a new local friend where the nearest park was so I could go run. And when I asked the question, he just started laughing at me. He started just laughing in my face. And he told me that, that men don't run. That running is a kid's game. It's a hobby for youth. It's what the little ones do all day. But men, no, no, no. We walk. We walk straight up. We don't run. Well, in this text here, in a far more conservative Middle Eastern setting, the father, the head of the household, the one with all the respect, respect and dignity, runs to his son. In order to run, the father would have to reach down and pick up his robe, exposing his bare legs, and you didn't do that kind of thing. The exposure of one's legs was, was considered shameful, and it's quite possible this man hadn't run in 30 or 40 years. Well, why does he run? I mean, I mean the son was going to get back to him eventually. Why not just wait, sit back, relax, let the boy come to you? He's the one that messed up anyway. Well, the answer is quite simple. He wants to reach his son before the sun reaches the village. He not only wants to initiate reconciliation, but he wants to protect his son from the shame he would receive upon arriving back in the village. See, in this culture, for a son to come back after losing his family's fortune, it would mean a special ceremony would take place at the city gates where the son would receive scorn and mocking from the entire community. And the father would probably disown him in front of all to see. The son would expect this. He would just sit there and just take it. But see, he's coming back just hoping to receive some mercy from the father and become like one of his hired men. But instead we see the father comes all the way from his house to the dirt of his village, bearing the shame that the son deserved. He bore it upon himself as he ran to his son. Now, don't miss this. Don't miss this. Not only does he accept the son back, but he humiliates himself in order to spare the son ridicule. Now, remember the son. The last time we saw this younger son, he was sitting in mud. He was sitting in mud puddles where pigs wallowed. He didn't stop at the Holiday Inn to get a shower and a shave. He's covered in pig slop. He was smelly, nothing appealing about him. Now, I can, I can see the running. I can see the embrace. But when you kiss someone covered with pig slop, you, you've gone overboard. 
I mean, this picture is overwhelming. The father pours out his love for the son in front of all to see. And so the son, accepting the father's embrace, gets ready for his speech. The speech he's been practicing and memorized all the way to the village. He's, he's got it. He's ready to go. But notice the father doesn't even let him finish. As soon as he says, I'm not worthy, in verse 21, he interrupts his son and tells his servants, go, get the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and be merry, for the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found See, the father's telling the whole community that this boy has been restored as my son. No father would ever do this. The son was looking to catch a break with his father, be a hired hand. Instead, he's received grace upon grace, and he's restored to full sonship. This would have been shocking to those Pharisees listening would have been shocking because all this happened without any works. That's the shock. It was all grace. Verse 21 makes it clear to us. The son understood it. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Period. End of speech. But you see, he left something out, didn't he? Did you see that? Go back to verse 19. He left out a phrase from his practice speech that he had been working on. He left out the phrase, make me as one of your hired men. Now, why did he leave that out? Because there's no need for works. He's just received grace. The father is so eager, he embraces and reconciles to his son before he can ever say it. He leaves out the works part because he's already received grace without any work. He's been received as a son. There's there's no need to be a hired man. He's been forgiven by the father. He's a son again. And so the father throws a party. It's like a redeemer potluck times 10, if that's even possible. It's a a once-in-a-lifetime event. It's probably the biggest party this family has ever had. The whole community would have been there rejoicing that the son has come back and even more so rejoicing that the father's joy had been restored. So everybody in the community shows up. except the older brother. So the the scene shifts now. So let's look at the the second brother. Let's look at the, the elder brother. We meet him in verses 25 and following. And we discover that as he's heard the news of his brother, he begins to whine and cry out. Now our oldest daughter, Eliza, likes to whine when her younger daughter, sister Nora, takes her toys 
Right? Kids whine. Here we have this elder son, and he's whining. He says, I won't go to the party because you never gave me a goat. I mean, that's got to be one of the most ridiculous statements in all of Scripture, right? <laughs> it's got to be. You want a goat? No offense to goats. They're a nice animal. But really, goats are worth one one-hundredth of a cow and nothing in comparison to a fattened calf. See, in the other room, the father says, I've invited the entire area to celebrate with me. The best food is there. And you want to go celebrate with your friends eating a goat? Are you serious? Come enjoy fellowship with me. This is the happiest day of my life. And I want to enjoy it with you. Notice that the father goes out to both of his sons. Do you see that? He goes to the youngest son and kisses him. But notice the father also goes out of the party to go to his older son. He wants both of his sons in fellowship with him. Notice the treatment is the same. Did you catch really kind of the deeper reason why the son is angry in verse 29. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. He's saying, look, dad, you don't understand life. Let me, let me explain it to you. I've never neglected a single command. Is that true? Is it true he's never neglected a command of his father? Well, we know it isn't. We, what had the father just done in the verses before this? I mean, the father was, was asking and even begging the son to come in to the party. And yet the elder son would not obey. He hadn't even been obedient in the last five minutes, much less his whole life. Because the elder son found the relationship with the father a burden rather than a delight. The bitter son is farther from home there in the field than the prodigal is in the pig pen. He had no love for his father. Keeping his father's orders was slavery. His real pleasure was not with his father. And he has no care for his brother now remember that Jesus is confronting the Pharisees. Jesus is confronting these men who prided themselves in keeping the whole law. These men were deeply religious people who on the outside looked good. I mean, they had it all together like the older son. But what Jesus is saying is that religious people obey God to get things. But Christians... Christians obey God to get God. They obey God to get more of Him, to be in relationship with Him. It all comes down to motivation. Of course, if you love the Father, you'll obey Him. But why? The older brother obeys Him to get stuff, to get things. Christians do it out of love and gratitude because we want to be with God. We want to enjoy fellowship with Him.
And yet we see in this story that the father's rebuke for the elder son is unbelievably gentle. You see that in verses 31 and 32. My son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You see the tenderness there? Did it mean anything to the older son that he was ever with the father? The rebuke is tender, but it's also clear. The demand is clear that if he was indeed a true son of the father, then he must, he must come to the feast. Well, does the elder brother go to the party? We're on the edges of our seats as this play unfolds. But Jesus ends this parable. He ends the story with no answer, with the son still outside of the party. It's often been asked of this parable, why does Jesus describe such a terrible older brother? It's because Jesus is trying to give a clear, vivid picture to the Pharisees of what they look like. What would a true elder brother have done? A true elder brother would have seen the agony of his father. He would have seen his father distraught and sad day after day. And he would have said, Father, I'm going to go find your son. And even if he has squandered all of the inheritance, that's okay. I'll use my money. I'll bring him back home to you so that your joy could be restored. That's what a true elder brother would have done. But the prodigal doesn't have a true elder brother, but we do. Jesus describes a bad elder brother so that we would yearn for a good one. As many have said before me, we don't just need an elder brother to go into the next town to find us. We need an elder brother who brings us into God's family, not at the cost of a few Durham's, but at the cost of his entire life. And so on the cross, Christ was stripped naked so that we could be clothed in a robe of honor we did not deserve. Jesus placed a ring on your hand and shoes on your feet because his hands and feet were pierced through The father accepts you as a child only because he turned his face from his son while he hung there on the cross. And as he hung there on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the only time Jesus didn't call him father. Because at that time, he wasn't being treated as a son so that you and I could be. It was there on the cross that Jesus paid the penalty for our sin that deep down each of us knows that we owe. The full cup of God's wrath that we deserved was poured out on Christ every last drop. This is the gospel, my friends. 
The death we deserved for sinning against the holy God was taken upon Christ, God in the flesh. And this morning, he is stretching out his arms, ready to embrace all of us if we would respond in repentance of our sin and belief in him. Well, as you reflect on this story this morning, do either of these two sons resonate with you? Perhaps you find yourself like the younger son this morning. Maybe you've rejected God and you've lived for the pleasures of the world. Realize that like the prodigal, you have looked the father in the eye and have said that you wanted nothing to do with him. You wanted his things, but not him. You've gone away. You've turned around to live your life in your pleasure, your ways. Perhaps this morning you've realized that those efforts have been futile. Perhaps you've been holding out. I urge you this morning, if that's you, to give your life away. Turn from your sin. Accept him today and believe in Christ alone for your salvation. The Bible is clear that to be saved, we place our faith in Jesus. So I encourage you to even do that today if you haven't before. And we'd love to talk to you about it, even after the service today. Lenny Mathiah, who was reading the scripture, and Glenn Jones, who's leading the music, they'll be up front here. Uh, I'll be out in the back with Kate Wright. And we'd love to just meet with you. If you're considering these claims and even thinking about it, we'd love to talk with you and walk you through that. Well, maybe you are a follower of Christ. Maybe you find yourself, though, in the same place as the prodigal this morning. Maybe you came to Dubai and you've pursued the wrong things. Maybe you've run far from God. Oh, friends, friends, I plead with you. I cried out for you this week in my prayers that you would repent of your sin, that you would come back to God. Maybe this morning you are involved in some sexual sin. Maybe you've cheated on your spouse. Maybe you've addicted, been addicted to things on the computer. Maybe you're in grave debt. Maybe you've been dishonest for financial gain. Or maybe you just turned your back to God. Maybe you've become saddened and angry at God that you've just turned around and walked the other way. My prayer for you is that you would come back home. I wish I could come down to each of you right now and and hug you. But I know God opens up his arms to you right now to embrace you. He's saying it's time to come back to my fellowship. Would you join me in the feast? Don't wait. Do it today. Well, maybe you're, you're saying, Dave, uh, I don't sin like that. I have it all together. I look good. Everything's going well. I can do it myself. Perhaps you can relate more to the elder brother. Maybe you come from a background with a lot of rules and a lot of laws. Maybe you did your best to keep them. Perhaps you come from a background that says you can earn your salvation. If you kept these sacraments, if you do these things... Well, this morning, are you trusting in your own moral performance to earn God's acceptance? 
Maybe you feel like you can do it. Maybe like the Pharisees, you do look good. But where really is your confidence? Is it, is it in your spiritual growth or your church membership? Maybe your baptism or reputation? Or maybe it's all the ministry you're involved in. No, our confidence, your confidence must be in Christ alone and what he has accomplished for you. See, even in all the good that you do, the problem is not always in the action itself, but in the very reason you did what was right. See, much like the Pharisees, our motives are impure. And as Tim Keller has said, we need to learn to repent of the very reasons you ever did what was right. Often we do good things, but they're merely a means of self-justification, a, des- a desire to control God. The elder son was not obeying to get close to the father, but to control him, to get what he wanted. What we see in these two sons is that it's possible to avoid Jesus as Savior as much by keeping all the biblical rules as it is by breaking them. There are really two ways to save yourselves apart from God. You save yourself by keeping the rules or breaking them and making your own. But both ways fail. Face it, regardless of how good we may look on the outside, you and I don't need to be tweaked, or rather just slightly adjusted. You tweak a, you tweak a poorly written sentence, you adjust a rearview mirror in your car. No, you and I need to be radically rebuilt by grace. The Bible says that we are all guilty of breaking God's commandments. When we read the Ten Commandments, they read over us like a death sentence. But thankfully, Christ offers to pay a debt for, pay a debt that he did not owe because you and I had a debt we could not pay. No matter how hard we work, our biggest problem doesn't come from the outside, but it comes from the inside. And the only solution comes from Christ. To get that the other way around is to completely miss the gospel. So this is you today. If you've been trusting in yourself, I encourage you to confess and acknowledge that you can't do it on your own. And to say to God, I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe. And yet here's the best part. Here's here's the greatest news for all of us is that If you believe in Christ, you are more accepted and loved than you ever dared to dream. So my fellow Christian as well, as we we conclude, rejoice in this truth today. Rejoice that you are saved. And if you're lacking joy today, if you're dealing with hardship, if you're struggling, if you're just not happy, maybe you're dealing with tragedy even. I encourage you to stop. Stop right now in your seat and be moved by what it costs to bring you to God. Be moved by what it costs to bring you home. Christ died to give you life. So wherever you you are this morning, whatever your religious background, the answer is Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of our faith, the vault of our church. Turn to him. Embrace him. It will change your life. That's the gospel. That's 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray and thank God for his son. Father, thank you for sending your son to us. May we marvel in your love. You ran to us. You reached into the depths of our depravity, extended your arms and embraced us. Father, we need your love more than we need oxygen and water. We cannot exist apart from it. Father, whether we've been in the pig pen or we've come to church all of our lives, would we realize that we are all rebels? Would we acknowledge and accept your embrace today? May we delight in your saving grace. In Christ's saving name we pray. Amen.